Welcome to the Digital Thoughts Podcast. My name is Zan Sayed, and I am a pharmacist turned product manager. I have almost 10 years of clinical experience in oncology, ranging from inpatient all the way to outpatient. My goal with this podcast is to bring people from all sides of the conversation together so that we can learn from each other and build a better healthcare system. In this podcast, we discuss everything digital health from the people to the products. If you do enjoy what you listen to, please consider giving this podcast a five-star rating in Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It really does help a lot. Thank you very much, and let's get into the episode. Today, we have an awesome guest. Kyle McCormick is the owner of Blueberry Pharmacy. In this episode, we talk about why he built Blueberry Pharmacy, the business of retail pharmacy and how PBMs make their money, how are they different from Mark Cuban's cost plus drugs, and the future of pharmacy. This is a jam-packed episode. I hope you guys enjoyed it as much as I did. Hey, Kyle, how are you doing today? I'm pretty good. How about you? I'm doing good. I've been really excited uh, to talk to you for a while. Um, you, for those who don't know who you are, do you mind giving us a little background about yourself? Yeah, sure. And, and again, thanks for having me on. Um, but yeah, I'm looking forward to the conversation. Uh, my name is Kyle McCormick. I'm the owner of Blueberry Pharmacy, along with uh, a good friend and um, colleague, uh, Ravi Patel. Uh, but yeah, the story of Blueberry um, goes back to probably pharmacy school whenever we did a competition for independent pharmacy business plan and we ended up winning and that kind of got the itch going uh wanting to eventually own my own business and my own pharmacy and just seeing being involved in pharmacy over the past decade every year hearing about decreasing reimbursement and increasing fees and pbm this pbm that realized, you know, I still had this dream of owning my own pharmacy, but it just didn't seem realistic to do traditional model. And so my wife gave me the, the green light to to just jump in and, and try something different. So we launched an insurance-free model, cost plus model back in 2020 uh, that doesn't involve any PBMs or third parties. We just, patients pay direct, fair and transparent prices for their medications. It's been a fun, uh, fun venture. A lot of learnings, uh, a lot of excitement, a lot of challenges, but uh, wouldn't change it for the world. That that's awesome, man. I think you're the first person ever to have built a business off your pharmacy school business plan. <laughs> <laughs> no, not the same business plan by any means. <laughs> but uh, but no, I mean that's awesome, still man. Inspired by it, yeah. Still inspired. By it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, lots I can't... Of, lots of changes between that business plan and this one. I would hope so. I would hope so. No, that's awesome. So, so you kind of, so why did you want to build Blueberry Pharmacy? So you kind of talked about like you guys are an insurance free cost plus uh, model. Like what led you down this road? Yeah, I always think back to a patient encounter at the pharmacy I used to work at. So it was an independent pharmacy and the patient had Medicare Part D. They were prescribed Vesicare. And it was generic at the time. It, it, it had been generic for a little bit whenever this happened. And so the patient came up to get the medication and we rang it up and it was a $300 copay. And I had the stock bottle in my hand and I could see that we as a pharmacy only paid $5 for that, that medication. And so in that moment, I, I thought, this is ridiculous. And luckily, my boss didn't care if we would change prices for patients. So we did just go ahead and change that price for the patient. But, you know, it got me thinking, like, why Why does this happen this way? Why, why do we have to have a world where we 
bring prices down arbitrarily for different patients and you know have these really high prices um, on drugs that only cost five dollars why don't why don't we just charge you know if it costs five dollars why not just charge 25 there's a 20 dollar margin uh, patients happy we're happy none of that's going towards their donut hole all these things and so i, I think back to that interaction a lot you know that the, there were definitely hundreds of those over my the course of my career where it's just like why is the copay so high there was a billified deductible phase $400 copay. Uh, just drugs that, that are very inexpensive. A billify the bottle of 90 that we were buying at the time was probably, you know, $3. And <laughs> so you have a patient have a $400 copay. So I started to look into the reasons why drugs are so high, highly priced. And it has nothing to do with their actual cost because as I highlighted, they, they are cheap. And so a lot of it was just born out of the frustrations of overcharging patients. And a lot of it, you know, as I learned, wasn't so much the never really the intent of the independent pharmacy owner or the pharmacist. It's more of just the way the model's built to where you have to bill super high in order to get some percentage of that back from the insurance company. Because oftentimes you barely make anything on a prescription. So in that realization, you know, that's where like I don't think I can make change in the existing model. I think it's got to be a completely new model. Different things like contract language uh, that exists with PBM contracts that would prevent a pharmacy in the traditional model from doing something similar. And so that's, that's what caused me to just start from scratch and do it that way. Yeah, that's kind of crazy. I mean, from I've been in the pharmacy world and I mean, I don't know anything, but you know, what you say is, it's true. And like, why is it that? So like, for example, like your um, Vesicare example, right? It was $5 a bottle. You, I mean, it was, I don't know what example you said, but you, you know, you got, you paid $5 for it. You're charging them 20, $25. You got a really nice margin on the bottle. Both sides are happy. Like, I know that retail pharmacies, people think that retail pharmacies are making bank. They're making like all these margins on these things. Like they're just jacking up prices for the hell of it. How much, how much are they making? Cause it seems like they're definitely not making $20 on a bottle of, you know, a bottle of a month, month supply. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Usually not making 20, 20 bucks per prescription. I think the nationwide average from NCPA is about $12 and some change per prescription is the gross profit margin. And then the cost to fill those prescriptions taking the total expenses of a pharmacy over the course of the year, dividing by the number of prescriptions filled, coming with the cost of dispense, that's around um, ten dollars and some change. Uh, and so, you know, you're working with a two dollar profit margin in between. Um, and those numbers have kind of the cost of dispense has gone up over the past couple of years, labor labor costs, things like that. But also the 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 gross profit has also fallen. So it's just getting a thinner and thinner margin uh, it, yeah, basically every single year. Um, but yeah, it, you know, most prescriptions, you're exactly right. A lot of patients think, oh, those pharmacies are very profitable. They usually think it's on the ones that they have high copays on, like the insulins or the eloquences or, you know, super high dollar items and, and tends to not be those those brand name drugs. Usually those are the drugs that honestly most pharmacies probably lose money on. Has to do with the, the way the contracts are built. But there's a regional uh, grocery chain 
but basically sign a contract with Express Scripts that guaranteed a loss on every single brand name that they fill. Just the way that, that buying and selling the contract was written. So it's it's really hard. Most most brand names that pharmacies are filling anymore are for a loss. And if they are for profit, even then that's really tricky cash flow because if you think about it, they say you're even up ten dollars on a brand name prescription. You buy this expensive drug, patient picks up, they pay maybe a $20 copay, $40 copay. They'll say it's a $500 drug. You owe your wholesaler about two weeks after you buy it. Um, so you now owe your wholesaler, say, 500 bucks. But you only have that patient copay of 20, 40 bucks. You don't get reimbursed from the third party or the, the uh, PBM until about a month after the prescription is filled. And so you're out, like, you have that whole month time frame whenever you only have 20, 40 bucks in cash in hand, you've got to pay the wholesaler back for the drug. You've got to pay payroll. You've got to pay overhead expenses, all that stuff, rent. And uh, so you have to take out a line of credit in order to manage the cash flow. And so even if you make $10 eventually on that prescription, it's it still really hurts your cash flow to, to dispense brand name medications just because the cost of carrying that inventory is so high. That's the other big challenge of brand names is they're so such high dollar items that they greatly impact the the, the cost of running a pharmacy um, and carrying inventory. Um, so yeah, even if you make money, often it's not in the end it's not a, a profit. Because then there's also DIR fees, which we can get into. <laughs> uh, we were looking at a pharmacy's data, and basically for the whole year, on all of their brand claims prior to even accounting for. DIR fees, they only made about $45,000 on, on brand name drugs. And then they had an $87,000 DIR fee for the year. So if you, now granted, not all that would have been attributed to brands, um, but basically it washes out any profit they had from brand names anyhow. So from the cost of carrying that inventory, the cost of DIR fees, it's just not worth it to, for most pharmacies are realizing anymore that it's not worth it to carry brands in a pharmacy setting, even if you're doing third party billing. What are, what is DIR, what are DIR fees? I'm not the best DIR scholar, but they're fees that are assessed uh, basically after three to six months, a couple months after a prescription has been billed to the insurance. The origins are a little bit unclear to me. I know it, ha it goes back about a decade or more, I think around the Affordable Care Act time. And it was somehow supposed to encourage clinical metrics and things like that, but it got taken on by the the PBM as a way to make an additional profit, right? And so over the past decade, you know, what used to be a maybe a dollar fee for in terms of the DIR fee, now on some claims is a, a couple hundred dollars uh, DIR fee. The NCPA put out a study uh, that the DIR fees have risen basically 92,000% over the past decade. Um, and, and there's pharmacies that are paying, you know, six figures of DIR fees a year. So if you can imagine like the pharmacy that I was talking about, $87,000 in DIR fees, that was only on, I think 20 some thousand prescriptions filled for the year. Um, and, and so, you know, that's, that's three quarters of the way to a full-time pharmacist, if not more. Uh, like two thirds of a full time pharmacist, it, it just in fees. So, you know, that's just getting unmanageable at that point. <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah, that's insane. Um, 
Wow, I don't even know. The ninety-two thousand percent increase is like what's getting me right now. Like that's that's like not even like a number. Like you know, like how do you even like quantify that? Well, I mean, to be fair, I guess they are definitely high. They're very very high. Ninety-two thousand definitely it makes it sound ridiculous because you're inflating like it's based on a very small starting point. And yeah. so, <laughs> but still, but, uh, yeah, it's still ridiculous. Yeah, I mean. The pace of inflation that's way above the pace of inflation. But yeah, I mean, the one thing that I learned after the fact, and uh, it's not a visual, uh, you know, easiest to explain with visuals, um, but really how the PBMs use the DIR fees as a way to make profit. Uh, one of the visuals that I usually share with students when I'm telling them about DIR fees and PBMs is a claim transaction part D that a pharmacist shared on independent pharmacy Facebook group. And patient copay was $0. Uh, the pharmacy billed $1,700, only got $1,100 back from the, the PBM. They asked for $1,700, got $1,100, but then the DIR fee for that prescription was $975. So, um, so the, the pharmacy thinks they're gonna get $1,100, the 975 gets pulled back. So at the end of the day, they really only made about $150 on the prescription. And so uh, there's several layers to that, but what I didn't know maybe until two years ago, so after I had already opened up the pharmacy is really how the donut hole works and how the, all of that process just really hurts the patient too. So if you think about donut hole and the different phases of Medicare, you have four different phases of Medicare. You have the deductible phase, Medicare patients sometimes have like a $400 to $500 deductible. Initial coverage, where that's where the Eliquis prescriptions look like a maybe a $47 copay. And then the donut hole, where the patient's responsible for 25% of the drug costs. So that's whatever the Eliquis, that's $500, goes up to $130 copay. Uh, patient hits the donut hole once the plan plus the patient has spent right around $4,500. And so you think in that example where I said, you know, pay, the pharmacist got reimbursed $1,100, but then PBM pulled back $975 of that. You, you think the plan plus patient, I already said the patient had a $0 copay. You think the plan paid amount would be the difference between the $1,100 and the $975, um, because that's really all that came out of the, the plan's pocket. But what they report to CMS is at $1,100, even though they get to pull back $975 of it. So in, in four fills of this medication, this patient would be in the donut hole. And that medication is generic Cymbalta. And so four fills of this patient's duloxetine, they would already be in the donut hole because of this, this billing practice. Now, you know, you could place some blame on the pharmacy for billing $1,700 for generic Cymbalta because it's $10 drug. You could also put a lot of blame on the, T the PBM for having uh, such a big P like they could also just say, hey, pharmacy, we're not going to reimburse you $1,100. We're just going to give you $150 and not take anything back in DIR fee. Uh, but instead, they, they reimburse the $1,100 to make it look like a lot and pull back $975. So they get to keep $975 as profit. Um, and so it's just a Really, it's a hard to, I probably didn't do a great job explaining it without visuals, but it's just a really broken system that ultimately impacts the patient a lot too, um, and really hurts the patient whenever you think about things like donut holes. Um, so yeah, really broken.
Yeah, man, that's uh, that that's that sucks. I mean, if you have the visuals, I can link them in the show notes, and people can kind of okay, yeah. reference them. But um, so so why don't more pharmacies kind of go to like a cash model, like kind of like you guys are? So I'm assuming that you guys are making money, right? You guys are you're viable. You're you're making a good amount. Um, I guess maybe we can start off with like how. You know, after like, you know, a lot of people will be like, hey, how are you guys even in business still? Like, how how do you guys make business? It sounds like because you're not dealing with PBMs and this and that, and you're just you're just charging them a little bit more than you're paying for the drug. But is it that simple or is it a little bit more than that? Yep, it's that simple. We just charge a barren uh, um, dispensing fee for each prescription. So if patients aren't members to our pharmacy, it's cost plus $10 for 30 day, cost plus $15 for 90 day. And if they are members of the pharmacy, they pay a membership fee every year, but they also then um, pay a dispensing fee of three and five dollars for thirty and ninety days, respectively. So, really, how we make money is by filling prescriptions, just like a normal pharmacy does. It's just our billing practices are very transparent and upfront. And instead of billing it to a third party, we just bill it directly to the patient. So, yes, uh, it's, a, it's a viable business model. Um, we're pretty much at scale, uh, basically break even, um, to uh, and growing every single day. So I, I really think the the, the models will be a success. Um, but yeah, it's very straightforward. But often patients will say, "How do you make any money?" It's like, well, I can tell you exactly how we make money. I made ten dollars on filling this prescription. You know, uh, my my question back to them is, "Have your have your other pharmacy explain how they were charging so much?" <laughs> like, because they probably bought it at a cheaper price than we bought it at. Um, but yeah, it's uh, very straightforward. Just cost plus 10 and 15, cost plus three and five for members um, model. So when you guys started, did you guys get any like pushback for it? Because I mean, it's not normal, right? I mean, I shouldn't say it's it's not, we're not trained to like pay the dispensing fee, right? We're just, we're trained to like just pay our copay. It's going to be high sometimes. You just kind of have to deal with it and all that stuff like when you guys first started did you have to do some education as to why you were charging membership fees and such yeah it's still one of the hardest part of the business is the, the education barrier everybody just expects insurance to be involved um well people say well, uh, <laughs> yeah. well who's my favorite one was like um i told a patient a copay and they're like well who's paying you i said you are <laughs> i thought she was like offended like i was like we don't take insurance she's like no but who's paying you like uh i said well you know it's your copay 25 dollars and she's like yeah but you, you've got to be paid more than that like <laughs> and then i realized i had this realization she's like you know my other pharmacy told me it was going to be 1100 dollars. this is a, a cancer medication um and she's like my other pharmacy told me it was going to be 1100 dollars, so that Somebody else has to be paying you, and I said no. Like the drug cost me uh, fifteen dollars. You're paying me twenty five, so I make ten dollars selling this. <laughs> and if you keep taking my time, I'm going to charge you twenty six dollars. <laughs> like, like uh, but uh, no, definitely education there because then I had to explain how you know how we make money, how the other pharmacy was billing things, and it's like no other pharmacy has to explain away their eleven hundred dollars. It's like um and so it is kind of frustrating that despite charging fair prices we still have to explain our prices <laughs> you think it'd be the opposite way around that like people that are overcharging should have to explain their overcharge uh but yeah definitely the biggest barrier is education just because of the you know 
people just expect insurance to be involved. Um, so we often use the analogy to car insurance where, um, you know, you have car insurance, but you don't use it for everything. You have car insurance for the high cost unknown event, like getting in an accident. You don't use it for your oil changes or your gasoline, um, things that keep you running uh, that are low cost, right? Well, a year supply of Crestor is way less than one oil change. <laughs> so, so like, why do we expect these generic medications to be covered by our health insurance, which again, should be used insurances intended for high cost unknown events. So it should be used for high cost unknown health expenses. Um, so once you kind of share that analogy there, like, huh, yeah, I never thought about how I, you know, I never even tried or don't think my insurance would cover my car oil change. I'm like, no, they wouldn't. <laughs> it's not intended for that. Uh, and so once they have that realization, that usually it makes a lot more sense to them, but it's it's definitely the education is always the challenging part. Yeah, I think that's a great analogy, actually. Um, it makes complete sense. But so why 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 isn't like Walgreens, I mean, I, I know why CVS isn't doing it, but why isn't like Walgreens or Rite Aid or something kind of going to this like cost plus month? I mean, Walmart kind of started it right way back in the day when they had their like uh, $5 plan and Target followed suit and then everyone kind of had to force it. But like, why aren't they doing it more for everything? Because it seems like it's very straightforward. You know exactly what your margins are. You know exactly how much money you're going to be coming. It's like you can, you know, but like, why isn't, why aren't they doing that? Yeah, and I think a lot more of them are. If you look at the chatter amongst independent pharmacies, basically every single day there's a post in the threads about, you know, um, looking to convert to a cash-only model or how do I increase my cash prescriptions or, you know, thinking about pulling the plug on third parties. Some iteration of that happens every single day in the independent space. So, and if you look at gro growth of cost plus pharmacies since we opened March 2020, um, there's been about six other independent pharmacies that have um, launched cost plus models. There's several others that are working with um, hybrid models. And then there's a big, you know, national model um, that, that exists too. So that's just all in the past three years. So definitely a lot of growth. And I think it'll start to pressure the incumbents to change their, their pricing models. And honestly, it has to, because once you have transparency, Patients will start asking questions. Employers will start asking questions. Why am I being billed eleven hundred dollars whenever it costs you, like whenever I can see this other pharmacy charging twenty five dollars? It doesn't even take my insurance, right? Um, one of my favorite encounters is we have a patient who's uh, head of a HR department at a at a, an employer, and um, they're saving a ton of money at our pharmacy. So they actually went back to their broker and said, "Hey, what's what's going on here?" Um, so then their PBM reached out and said, Hey, we want to put you in network. And I'm like, please sign this contract. I said, no, that's the complete opposite of like our model. I'm not agreeing to your terms because they don't make sense. And they're like, well, okay, well for now we'll go ahead and put you in network. So that way you can, so the, that way the patient can get reimbursed, uh, for their expense, um, directly. So like they were going to just have the patient a check for, for the reimbursement, but yeah. So uh, I think, uh, you know, now they're asking questions to their, their PBM, to their broker and saying, hey, you know, this plan you sold us, why can we get it cheaper without using it? Um, so I think a lot, of, a lot of questions will start being asked and already have been around um, the incumbent or the traditional model. And so it'll, it'll force the, the hands of the big players to do something. Just sell Express Scripts announce a, a move towards transparency on drug pricing. Um, 
but as you know, highlighted by a lot of the, the people in the field, um, the, the problem with healthcare, you know, if you introduce a transparency at one layer, uh, it's all vertically integrated. So maybe they'll just hide the hide it on the medical side, or maybe they'll hide it on um, the administrative fee size. So what they, you know, not the price of the drug, but what they charge the employer, or, or maybe they'll hide it in the DIR fee or something like that. So the, the the big reason that the other ones aren't doing it is they don't have to. Um, and even when they they will have to, they'll likely find a way to hide the pricing elsewhere anyhow, or hide the profit elsewhere. Yeah, and that's the unfortunate nature of our system. Um, I mean, there it is good. At least, I mean, at least at least we're moving to transparency, and it, and the more I mean, it's a slow move. I mean, I just talked to uh, someone from Turquoise uh, the other day, and they're working on transparency throughout hospital systems and such. Um, mm -hmm. And it's it's happening. It's slow, but it's you know at least it's moving in that direction. So that's always good. So you did mention a bunch of um, cost plus pharmacies that are coming up, and mm -hmm. you know. I'm sure you get this all the time, Mark Cuban, Cost Plus. What's the difference? Are you guys the same? Did you copy them? What happened? You know, like, so what about, what is, okay, first of all, for the record, you guys opened before they did, correct? March 2020, yep, they opened. <laughs> they uh, launched their manufacturing arm January 2021, the whole year, almost a whole year after we launched. And then they launched their pharmacy January 2022, so two years after we launched. And um, so what, are they doing a similar model or is it different than what you guys are doing? Yeah, uh, my favorite thing that would su sum it up is uh, the CEO, of, uh, the ex-CEO, Phil Pack, DJ Parker, just tweeted out tonight, a brilliant uh, just breakdown of what makes them no different than anything else out there, really. Um, basically his tweet was uh, a quote, you know, removing the middlemen and then Below that, it was like, here's the billing codes <laughs> in order to use the Mark Cuban discount card. <laughs> so it's just highlighting, like, it's just an, uh, another good Rx. Uh, it's just another. Now, I will say it was probably founded and created under good intent. But the problem that in execution is the fact that Mark Cuban, the, the Cuban model, doesn't actually remove, I mean, it doesn't actually remove any middlemen. It just replaces all the middlemen. Um, so the only thing that Mark Cuban currently isn't is a manufacturer or a pharmacy. They're everything in between. Relabeler, this, uh, wholesaler, PBM, um, but not a manufacturer or a pharmacy. And so um, you know, the idea of removing middlemen, they don't do that for anything. Uh, so what makes them different is that they're not actually the dispensing pharmacy. True Pills, the dispensing pharmacy, and they just set True Pills prices. So similar to how PBM sets prices at you know Walmart or CVS, um, True Pill bills the Mark Cuban plan. Mark Cuban plan spits back their negotiated cost plus price. Now in theory, that price is based on True Pills acquisition. So it's in theory, um, and I and I truly believe that just based on the cost that they're they're showing. They're very believable that that would be the acquisition cost. So I don't discredit that. I just think that um, it's not a true cost plus model because it's not the pharmacy using their acquisition prices and just charging, you know, directly. It involves another middleman. So in a nutshell, it's, it's the fact that we don't involve any middleman 
and Mark Cuban cost plus is a middleman. Yeah, no, and um, I think that's an important distinction to make. I mean, they might be a little bit better middlemen than the old middlemen, but it's still a middleman, right? Like you said, they're yeah. not the ones dispensing it. Because I think that's the one thing that people don't get is they might go on cost plus, buy the medication there, but it's not coming from cost plus. Like in your case, like they go to you, you're physically buying the medication, you're physically dispensing the medication to them. So mm -hmm. just in that, I mean, that's the biggest difference, right? Like for you, you're literally cutting them out. You are, you're taking on all the risk, you're taking on all the costs of everything. They're just kind of, I mean, I guess they're yeah, a little they're bit more transparent PBM, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, that's all they are. That's a great way to put it. They're just a transparent PBM. And, you know, the, the one thing that kind of frustrates me is they're not the only transparent PBM out there. They're not all, also not the first. Like, there's some great transparent PBMs out there. Capital RX is one of them. You know, if I were to ever consider taking third-party agreements, you know, I would do it with Capital RX. They're, they're, they're the industry leader. Um, and so it's just frustrating that, you know, because it's Mark Cuban, because it's a billionaire, because it's a, a public figure, uh, it just gets a lot of media attention. And then they bypass the fact that they're not a pharmacy. Patients aren't saving because of Mark Cuban, they're saving because of a PBM that's a little more transparent. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that, I think that also is because of the complexity of the, I think what all these news outlets are just seeing is like, Hey, Mark Cuban and mm -hmm. cheaper drug prices and yeah, everything yeah, in the yeah. middle that really, I mean, it's that powers it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, honestly, I don't think the people reporting on it really understand the actual, no, no, yeah, like what sure. a PBM does, what all these fees <laughs> are added. Like why is medication expensive? Like, I don't think they really understand that, mm -hmm. so they don't even talk about it, but yeah. yeah. And really, I mean, you just see powered by Truebill on cost of drugs. So if I saw that, I would think as a patient, you know, that's just the technology platform, mm -hmm. you know, powered by Stripe, powered by Truebill. Like, don't realize that it's the whole pharmacy infrastructure. It's the, the employer of the pharmacist. It's the, you know, the phone number you call whenever you call, you know, are we talking to Truebill? It's like, you, you don't realize that. Uh, so yeah, it, it's just not apparent. And I don't blame any, you know, media outlet or patient for not understanding it because people in the industry don't even understand fully so i mean i don't understand it at all i mean uh, <laughs> i've had i've talked to our mutual contact i mean mutual friend bryce uh platt he's mm -hmm. pretty he's a genius when it comes to this stuff he explained it to me um i kind of got it then and now you're explaining yeah. it to me and it's starting to kind of make more sense but yeah. it's it's really confusing and i think it's confusing on purpose because mm -hmm. like you know the more the more layers you can put onto it like you said the the more places you can hide different fees, different things. Cause like if one layer gets transparent, then you just kind of move it to another one. You kind of just shift things around here and there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. But, um, so like, so when you, so you guys said you're, you're kind of getting at scale. So do you guys only do like local prescriptions or are you guys starting to get into mail order? Do you already do mail order? Yeah. Ideally we wouldn't do any mail order. Um, I'm strongly believe that a pharmacy's uh, a community necessary in a community. I really don't like the idea of mail order, but that being said, our model current in a current environment, whenever patients can't access fair and transparent prices where they live, we do end up mailing a lot of our prescriptions. Still, most of our volume, about 90% of our volume is in the Pittsburgh market, um, but we all are licensed Pennsylvania and Ohio. So we, we do mail prescriptions all throughout Ohio, all throughout Pennsylvania. Uh, but really the ideal world is where Patients can access an expensive cancer medication at the pharmacy to right next door to them, right? So our goal is to help expedite that. We do that through our consulting side of helping 
pharmacies across the country adopt, adopt this model, educate around the model, uh, and then um, until patients are able to access, you know, in their local community, we do mail order. Uh, and then as we grow, the mail order um, hopefully will allow us to then grow the local business as well. So that way, whenever I, I, I really don't like the idea of mail order in the you know ten years from now, I hope that we have zero mail order for generic medications because it really doesn't make sense. Shipping is so expensive; uh, it literally costs more for the courier than it does to hire a pharmacist. Um, like that, that's how that's how you know it, it's clear too. With even Mark Cuban's pricing, it's five dollars to ship it, three dollars for the pharmacist fee. Uh, so literally, the shipping is. I'm bad at math. Um, not that bad. Sixty per. Uh, the pharmacist fee is sixty percent of the shipping costs. Um, so, like that, that's just crazy how expensive shipping is. So, these drugs are cheap, and so and patients usually take more than one drug. So to pay that amount on shipping every time, uh, especially as you know, gas costs go up and things like that, shipping is bound to get more expensive than pharmacists. You know, at a, Shipping has been getting more expensive at a greater pace than pharmacist has. So that's why I really don't think long-term mailing, mailing these make any sense. Um, and so if every community has thousand count bottles of amlodipine, abilify, capecitabine, uh, these very inexpensive medications, then patients in that community will be able to access them at fair prices. Um, it is really a matter of um, making that a possibility. And then I think we see basically zero mail order because most people don't like mail order. You know, if you look at the reviews for Truebill, um, most people don't have great experiences with mail order. Um, and you really don't realize it until you have a bad experience. Like, you know, if 11 out of 12 packages come correctly, that's fine. But whenever your 12th one's delayed by three weeks and it's a blood pressure medication <laughs> and you're like, shoot, maybe I shouldn't use a mail order pharmacy for this. Then is then then the wake up call. So like most patients, you know, it's fine until it's not fine. Um, so I think if everybody can just you know get it, you know, same day or next day, locally, like that's the thing with even our shipping within Pittsburgh. Patients choose not to pick up their prescription and pay for the delivery, but in that in our small market, delivery gets there next day. So and and plus, even if it doesn't get to them, if there's a delay for any reason, we're still only ten miles away from them. So they can just come and pick up a, a supply locally. So that's why I think mail order won't win out over retail is because as we're able to match the prices that the local that the mail order pharmacies are offer uh, on some of these, patients won't be looking for a faraway option. Yeah, no, I mean I like that. I mean it's kind of I mean it's kind of like a hot take because I think a lot of a lot of I mean the major pharmacies have gone pretty much all all mail order or trying to go all mail order. Um, mm -hmm for various different reasons. And I mean, I like the idea. I mean, I like what you said, right? Um, I think having, I think the community aspect of healthcare is being stripped away from healthcare, not even slowly, it's very quickly happening. And, and I think it's only hurting the local population, the local patients, because when you have, and you can speak to this way more than I can, when you know your local community, you know what they need, right? Somebody in New York, you know, even as close they are to you as in Pittsburgh, they have no idea what the Pittsburgh community needs or your <laughs> local community needs. They know what they need and then they're trying to force feed that into your community and that just doesn't work. And I think we're seeing a lot of people kind of fall through the cracks because their specific needs of that community are not being filled. And I mean, I like your idea. I hope it work, does work out because I think that 
I think pharmacies, I mean, pharmacies used to be like that community hub, right? There's a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of healthcare deserts around, but usually there's a pharmacy or drugstore somewhere in, in close vicinity to them that they can access some sort of healthcare professional. And we're losing that very, very rapidly with the closure of all these um, independents. And now even like the big, the big chains are starting to close. Um, oh yeah. I mean, the big down. chains closed up before more. <laughs> yeah. The independents get. They'll get better, better reimbursement for rural. It's just that the chains can't hire somebody rural. So it's got to be somebody that's willing to live in the community. <laughs> so that's whenever independents really stand out there. But yeah, we're losing them. Um, I think to my parents' home, you know, my hometown, Somerset, PA, they don't even have an endocrinologist in the town anymore. Um, and it's not even that small of a town. There's like, you know, really small towns that definitely don't have endocrinologists, but it, it's got a hospital and all that. It just doesn't have an endocrinologist. And, um, so what they do is, you know, a 50 minute drive away, they, they bring in the endocrinologist for one day a week appointments and that town is filled with diabetes. So it's like, definitely they have the patient load for the endocrinologist. Uh, they just don't have the, the appeal for an endocrinologist, I guess, to live in that area. And so, um, yeah, luckily there's still pharmacies in the area, but as you see, you know, care being stripped away, like you said. Um, whenever that pharmacy leaves, see that's, you know, not only do they not have an endocrinologist, they don't have the drugs on hand to treat it. You know, they got to be shipped in. So imagine a big snowstorm, which happens in Somerset. Patients aren't able to get their medications, no pharmacy in town. Um, yeah, it's, it's just not, not a good idea of care provision. Like it's okay to have, it's okay to have your, your, uh, latest fashion delayed by a day or two or a week, a couple weeks. It's okay to have, um, you know. Uh, a new armchair that you got from Wayfair delayed by a, a month, but your medication, it really is okay to pay a little premium or, or not even a premium, maybe the same price or even cheaper because you don't have to pay shipping costs, right? It's okay to have that local. It's okay to want to have that local. And I think that's getting missed in a lot of the, uh, a lot of the, the hype around, you know, mail order and things like that. Yeah. And then the other thing is, and I just thought of this as you were talking, like a lot of these people, not, I shouldn't say these people, a lot of elderly people, sometimes their only interaction is like picking up their medication or seeing their doctor or this and that, right? Like, and when we're taking that even away from them, I mean, they, I mean, and we wonder why like people are like having like mental issues and like, because humans are not allowed, are not supposed to be alone, right? We're not, we're social creatures, regardless of how curmudgeon we get as we get older we still like to talk to other people we still like to do that and i think that's one thing that is lost in this whole healthcare ecosystem is just that human interaction whether if it's necessary not necessarily even if it's just like walking in and saying hi like you know mm -hmm. when i worked at when i when it not worked in retail when i was in like retail pharmacy i worked in a smaller chain and people would just show up and say hey what's up and and my pharmacist would be like yeah you know they live alone you know you know, we just, we're just, we're just there to them. We're like one of their few interactions. So, you know, we take the time out of our day to just to talk to them. And to me, that's really what community building is about. It's not about all the other stuff, but like, you're really, you're taking care of that person by not necessarily dispensing medications, but you're just taking care of that person just by having a conversation with them. And that you can't do with a mail order. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I think the other big challenge is the replacement of payment mechanisms. So I think you know, there are situations where care could be remoted or, or maybe it's supplemented with something like mail order, but the payment method don't support that yet either. So if you think about pharmacy, we can't, 
we can still have a local pharmacist uh, if if all the dispensing's done via mail order, just because the way the pharmacist currently gets paid is via dispensing prescriptions. Yeah, there's a couple of other things pharmacists can do or bill for. But if you look at the bulk of pharmacy, it's like 90% plus reimbursement from billing prescriptions. So if you were to pull that out and say, okay, mail order only, well, then yeah, there's no, that pharmacist will leave that community because there's no payment method there for them. That's one of the reasons I love about a membership pharmacy. Well, I'm a, a really big proponent for the membership model is because, um, you know, that's, that's basically a direct payment method. It's like subscribers, right? You know, subscribers, um, there's payment now to spend time on things that aren't filling. Um, and so that's the beauty of the membership model we have. 50% of our patients are members of our pharmacy. So, you know, I'm not worried as much about script volume or even uh, filling that next prescription. You know, I can think about things about, you know, maybe this prescription is not the best for you. You pay me to be a care provider for you. And one one thing I can look out for is, hey, maybe you don't need all these medications, right? In the current model, the incentive is, okay, I make money filling all these medications. So maybe they're the best, not, you know, maybe maybe they're not the best for them, but maybe they are, you know. But once we take away that incentive to where I'm not making money on the filling prescriptions, I make money on caring for the patient, um, then we can reevaluate those prescriptions or you know, what we're talking about, but removing dispensing and making it more. Now there's a payment model via uh, memberships for that. So even if some dispensing is done rem remotely, some of the brands might be shipped to the patient, I can still have a payment mechanism to get paid to be that, that patient's community pharmacist, be in that community be a resource for that patient. So I think one of the big challenges, you know, in, in um, bridging the, this care delivery gap that we have is new payment mechanisms. And I really think membership models allow allow for that. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I agree with you there. And I think that one thing that pharmacy is really struggling with right now is exactly what you said, right? Like dispensing is being taken away. Um, I mean, I joke, I, I wrote about this as kind of like tongue in cheek, but you know, AI is coming, machine is, the machines are coming, they're gonna start, they're gonna start automating everything. And what do we do then, right? And like, to your point, if you have a subscription model, you have that money coming in and you can do other things, right? You can do like MTM services or whatever. You don't even have to call it MTM. You're just basically just practicing medicine at that point, right? You're just making sure the patient is being done right with, right? Um, mm -hmm. I mean, like, where do you see like the future of pharmacy going? Yeah, I, I guess um, to some degree, you know, the latest iterations of AI, I'm almost like uh, the clinical pharmacist probably actually gets replaced first. Oh, interesting. Uh, it, it, just because of the, um, you know, so a lot of uh, thought around future and automation would be around all the um, moving parts. So whether you think of, you know, um, we we never would have guessed that maybe lawyers got replaced before construction workers because it's, uh, or, or um, probably not describing this best, but uh, I've heard this talk on a couple um, you know future talks now where a lot of the white collar jobs that we wouldn't have guessed would be replaced um, are actually more ripe for replacement than than maybe the more manual tasks. Um, like last mile delivery, right? Uh, uh, probably going to be a while before we figure out delivering packages, but that seems like a very automatable task, right? 
we've been trying for years, but haven't really figured that out. Maybe drones allow for that, right? But at the same time, you know, exploring ChatGPT, there's, you know, um, or and even some of the, I, I know Jonathan Adley just put out Gallon AI, which um, kind of takes uh, ID ID uh, literature and you, you put in a, a disease state or a infectious disease that you're trying to treat and some informa information about the patient and it spits out guideline-based recommendations. Um, and, you know, it's not implementable yet by any means. There's still flaws. But I think if you think about what a learning language LLM could, look, you know, review every literature, every piece of literature out there. Uh, and so I know we're really far off from it yet, but I don't, the pace that some of this stuff is laying out, I really think that there's a model where, you know, yes, me being a community member, like, I don't see that being replaced as, as, uh, as quickly as just, you know, um, AI doing MTM, right? Especially the MTM that we have right now is really poorly executed. Uh, it's like just adherence-based things, right? It's um, it's not even like actually that in-depth. So those are very uh, <laughs> automatable. So, you know, I, I, I think that uh, a lot of the community work, whether it's point of care testing, vaccines, um, dispensing of medications, uh, those might actually be less automatable than maybe some of the more just cl clinical decision-making. Interesting. I mean, um, I never actually thought of that. I thought, I, I thought it would be the other way around, to be honest with you, because then I was like, but I mean, when you, so, I mean, I referenced Sam Altman a lot, but that's mainly because mm -hmm. open AI is like everywhere and yeah, he's, yeah. No, he's, in, he's in a lot of. Yeah, he's, I've been listening to a lot of his interviews because I just kind of want to understand him. And for those who don't know, um, he's the CEO of OpenAI, which made ChatGPT. But um, he also mentioned something similar to what you said. He said that mm -hmm. uh, when they came out with Dali, like he said, the reason why people were so scared of AI, like what it really like hit people was when Dali came out. And Dali is what, you know, you can type in a text prompt and it'll create a painting for you or something, right? And he said that it was, he saw that AI was taking over creative jobs, like your white collar, if you want to call them white collar jobs, whatever you want to call them, like the ones that are using your mind faster than like the physical jobs. And he said that that was something that he didn't foresee happening because everyone assumed it was going to take care of the, it was going to take over the, I don't want to say lower level jobs or whatever, but like the, like the more labor intensive jobs. And then eventually it would never get to the point where it's, uh, you know, creating paintings or. Yeah diagnosing we patients thought, and all this stuff we thought the physical body was easier to recreate it recreate mechanically than the brain was and somehow the brain is now faster uh, <laughs> it's it, it being created faster than the the robots are um so yeah i mean it's, it's i mean it's an interesting conversation i'd love to kind of dive into it a little deeper i mean like for since you know since like robotics have come along i mean to your point we still can't make a robot that can simulate the human hand, right? But we can make mm -hmm. a robot that can make a decision, right? Just add a decision tree, like, okay, yes, no, maybe so. And you kind of go down, but like, we can literally not make something that grabs, that has an opposable thumb like we do and like can grab exactly the way we do, the way we walk, our gait, all that stuff. It just cannot, we still haven't gotten to that point. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and the crazy thing is I can actually count out and dispense pills faster than a robot can. But like, 
<laughs> but like that's my eye protection knowledge against the robot and i might not like if you look at some of this uh some of the exams that uh, it's passing um it's not far like, like it's you know from three to four GP, uh, gpt three to four you know you see a bump in every single exam that it passed right and that's that's iterating at a pace faster than any of you know the robots over the last four or five years you know yeah, you can do it at scale probably cheaper, but I'm not I'm not saying that the only thing we do is dispense, but I think you know, between point of care testing, drawing labs, you know, I know that I and even using so even beyond that, so yeah, using now now I can run a whole pharmacy just with myself, right? So I think that that's what we'll see is like I can run a cost plus pharmacy in a community just by myself and I can fill 150 scripts a day because I'm not I've got, you know, uh you know, GPT answering phone calls or, you know, doing like lower level, like you said, lower level tasks. I got, you know, uh, artificial division um, counting the pills for me. I don't need text to count pills. I can run a whole pharmacy. And honestly, we're not that far off. We really only have, I mean, we take students, but I've managed to fill a hundred scripts a day by myself because we're not spending all of our time on phone calls. We're not, um, we don't have the insurance billing to troubleshoot. It's just very straightforward. Counting, I use, uh, you know, smartphone app to count for me. Uh, you know, uh, then all the time, the majority of the time is just work talking to patients. You know, the majority of my time is spent talking to patients. And so I think that's why I think, you know, we're able to keep costs very low. And I, uh, so I don't, I don't see, I actually don't see my job being replaced as quickly as maybe, you know, some of MTM call centers or something like that. Yeah. And like you said, like the uh, MTM call centers, like MTM right now is very like surface level, right? It's just like, did you mm -hmm. take the medication? Did you not take the medication? Mm -hmm. Oh, you're on three hypertensive medications or you're on two calcium channel blockers. You know, like it's just like very simple, like black and white, right? Yeah, I could already do. <laughs> yeah. So like it's very black and white. And that's what I tell people is like, we need, we as pharmacists need to like think beyond the black and white and think outside the box and like, push ourselves forward more so because we're capable of doing it, right? We're taught to like manage therapy, but we just don't do it. I mean, there's a lot of political reasons for it and all this stuff. The AMA just kind of came out and said, hey, we don't want pharmacists doing this and that, whatever. But I mean, but but like, you know, you're absolutely right though. Like it can easily say like, you know, you know you're on this these medications, these don't make sense. We're gonna flag this person as a high, high thing or just automatically just DC certain things, right? Discontinue certain things. I mean, it's kind of crazy that, I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, like right now, like I honestly never thought about it the way until you just said it. And I'm like, and now I'm thinking about it. I'm like, dang, so, like, yeah, really? And then the like, other thing is, even if, a, yeah, even if an AI, like, honestly, I'll, I'll be completely honest with you. I trust the information in pearls. I don't know if you don't, Derek, you know, nice. I trust, you know, uh, you know, up to date, those medical resources. And if there's AI that can reference all of that, I would trust it over myself. But the 100%. big thing, right? But the big thing that still will be needed is a communicator um, or a facilitator. Um, and so even as things are identified, it's, you know, somebody saying, okay, that is true. So like, a, a professional say, okay, that is true. So in the background of my pharmacy, I could have all this, all these uh, LLMs running 
and helping identify um, help, helping identifying problems and, and flagging them and bringing mine to attention, but it still needs somebody to execute because at the end of the day, we're still working with patients, many of which are not tech savvy at all, right? <laughs> it would not trust at all something coming from the mouth of a, a, a machine, right? And so it's still at the end of the day has to be Kyle at Kyle's pharmacy uh, sharing that and, and helping the patient make those decisions and, and, and uh, execute on those decisions. Like, you know, I could, you know, we, every day patients here, you should, you know, drink this, eat that, be healthier. And we already can't do that, right? So why do we think, you know, technology, <laughs> and so you still need that coach, you still need that person, you still need empathy, and you still need the care provider to be delivering that. And that's why, at the end, that's why, you know, I'll say it again, that's why I, I don't see my role being replaced. I think as long as the dispensing, as long as a lot of the, you know, the non-clinical tasks, the, the non-pharmacist tasks could be automated to allow me to be able to provide kits, uh, care at scale, um, I, th I think that that, that that will exist. Yeah, no, I completely agree with you there. Like, even like in oncology, right, there's like uh, radiology and um has gotten radiology pathology has gotten a lot of AI coming into it because you know you're looking at pictures right it can, you can feed it a crap load of pictures that are positive or negative for x y and z and it can and it's getting to a point where it's really getting really accurate right and somebody posed a question like okay well we have this you know we can kind of cut the doctor out and I'm like well okay fine you find out imagine your mother or father or you even you find out you have cancer from an automated text message that's just not a good way to do it. You need a person on the other end to kind of explain it to you, to empathize with you, to kind of put you at ease. We as a society are not at that point. And I don't know if we'll ever get to that point, but that's where, like you, to your point, that's where you need these, that's where you need medical professionals. And honestly, I would be happy if we got back to that because that's really why we all went into medicine was to take care of our patients, not to like sit behind a screen and do all that stuff. And I, I joke with people like in pharmacy school and maybe even med, I can't speak to med school or the other ones, but like pharmacy school, it's literally four years of teaching you how to look up things really quickly, right? Like mm -hmm. you're mm -hmm. memorizing for the test, you forget it, but then they tell you, you're shown exactly where to look for it, how to look for it. And that like, I mean, when I was in, when I was in the hospital, I would always have up to date Lexicomp, whatever, open on one screen have the EMR open the other one as somebody's calling me or I would be typing away and I would have the answer because I was just really quick, quick at looking up things. And that was it. Like I didn't, I, people would ask me a question off the top of my head. I'd be like, I don't really know. I just have to look it up, but I just knew where to look it, look it up and how to look, where are the right places to look it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and also the skills of delivering that, right. So you know how to look it up, but also the skill of delivering that information in a way that is actionable for the patient or, or um, persuasive in some way to help the patient, you know, make habit change or, or make change. I think that's the skills that we emphasize in the future. Um, and honestly, one of the things that we've done at this service as, a, as an industry is really not focusing so much on that. Uh, a lot of it has to come back to payment. This is one of the big arguments I make patients or with students is, you know, we are fast to fight for all these additional services that pharmacists can provide. But don't get me wrong, I think, we're well, well trained to be able to do, but I think a lot of that is born out of the lack of payment for our core competency. Because at the end of the day, if I look at the law, um, the only thing that sets us apart from every, every, every other profession or even from technicians in some states is really that final check on a prescription. Um, you know, 
a lot of states now technicians can vaccinate. We could argue over all this, you know, um, uh, prescribing, um, changing therapy. We're capable of it, but at the end of the day, what makes us unique is our, our dispensing and our and our final check on prescriptions, doing a double check. Um, so that's what I, I always like to drive home with students is we can't forget that um, because that is what makes us unique. And um, so I like to explain, you know, a lot of our searching for other things, I think, is really born out of poor dispensing reimbursement. As dispensing reimbursement fell, 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 we were just like more volume, more volume, more volume. Let's fill more prescriptions, fill more prescriptions. Oh, but now we're not even making enough money to cover that, right? So now we don't have to do vaccines. Okay, but then vaccine reimbursement fell, fell, fell. So now what other service can we provide? We never got, we never cut any of that. We're like, we'll still dispense as much as we did before. We'll still vaccinate as many people as we did before, if not more. But now let's do think calls. Let's do MTM calls. Um, but if we think about what MTM is, this is the other big thing that I get really frustrated with is MTM is well, once uh, CMR specifically, I know MTM is more than just CMRs, but if we boil it down to the CMR, it's a once a year review to make sure your medication list is up to date, allergies are up to date, make sure there's no drug therapy problems, um, uh, all that stuff. But then we have this thing called Urban 90, um, which is basically the, the Offer to counsel is what it's boiled down to now. Um, but if you look at over 90 in the law back in 1990, it outlined exactly what should be happening every time we fill a prescription. And it should be every time we are filling a prescription and dispensing a prescription, we should be looking at allergies, update, updating allergy lists. We should be updating medication lists for drug, drug therapy problems. We should be looking for adherence problems. And that's a requirement to, in order to bill Medicaid and Medicare and offer that counseling that goes along with that, right? And because reimbursement fell and we kind of stopped doing some of that to the, to the greatest extent, we now have problems building up that we have to find in, in a cumulative once a year review. And so born out of poor dispensing practices, we now are accumulating problems in a patient's profile that we have to troubleshoot in the form of the CMR. So, you know, I wish we just focused a lot more on the dispensing and reimbursement there. And I think that would fix some of the problems around, you know, is, an, is a CMR really the best way to tackle problems? The once a year, you know, review that you provide a patient a 15 to 20 page document that they're supposed to digest in some way. You come up with a 10, 10 problem list that doctors will only listen to you on one problem. But if you were to address each of those whenever they actually arrive um, in the form of actually getting paid for the, the dispensing role, You'd have a lot more success rate with patients. Uh, you'd have a higher success with uh, doctors, and it would it would prevent all those problems from building up. So uh, I, I just get really frustrated around that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I yeah, I honestly did not know any of that, and I know we're coming up to time, but um, yeah. yeah, no, man, I've learned a lot uh, from just this last little bit. We kind of went in a direction that I didn't think we would go to, but I'm glad we went into that direction. Um, but for so like just just to kind of end up end this all what would you what advice would you have given yourself before you you know kind of kyle in pharmacy school like as like all the stuff you know now like what advice would you have given yourself back then um yeah uh i don't know that i'd change much <laughs> that's good. not because i feel like you know i feel like learning the lessons was the best way to learn them you know the hard way uh and so just to have myself 
teach me something, probably I wouldn't listen to it. <laughs> but uh, no, I, I mean, a lot more maybe focus on, um, I would have liked to learn a lot more about drug pricing and how broken it was. Now, I definitely learned it the hard way because uh, I've learned more about drug pricing since opening up a pharmacy that was meant to try to fix drug pricing. You know, <laughs> uh, I, I keep learning things every day about how broken the system is. And so I think one, one of the big things we don't learn enough about in pharmacy school and possibly is mainly either because people fully that are teaching it don't fully understand it, or maybe it's more of like we're embarrassed by how broken it is. And so like teach people how broken it is and set them up for a career. <laughs> like what you'd want to be teaching people. But yeah, the biggest thing is, you know, dive more into how the system's broken and learn all about the system problems and flaws. So that way I could have hit the ground running a little bit more, you know, uh, trying to fix it earlier on. I could talk about that for days. I think that schools do a terrible job of telling us what the reality of our profession is. And we get a big slap of the truth when we come out and we're not, none of us are very few of us are really ready for it. I wasn't ready for it. Oh, no, nobody's ready for it. Yeah. And I think that it's just a disservice to us as students, the profession, because if we don't know the problems, we can't fix them. Right. And if you have people that are already looking, looking at the problem, maybe they can kind of fix it kind of like yourself. Right. Like, you know, you, like you said, you could hit the ground running and you could have been somewhere else. I mean, but everything happens for a reason. I'm glad you're doing what you're doing. It's great. Awesome. You're doing for the people who want to reach out to you. What's the best way for that? Yeah, probably LinkedIn, Twitter. Um, yeah, LinkedIn probably is the most professional. <laughs> I guess. But yeah. All right. Awesome. Twitter. Yeah. I'll have all that linked in the show notes below with um, also the thing that you said, like the, the graphic that you were going to send me. Also, one more thing before we go, what is that smartphone app that you use to help count? I'm sure people would like to it's, know. Uh, yeah, it's called Pill-Eye, P-I-L-L-E-Y-E. -L -L -E. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. Yeah. I wish you guys nothing but the best. Thank you. Um, Fun conversation. Really enjoyed it. Yeah. Well, yeah, maybe we'll have to, I mean, there's a lot I could have expanded on. We just ran out of time. I'd love to have you on again if you're, if you're up for it. I'd say let's talk about the future. Just, just. Yeah, uh, yeah. I love I love just all like ideas. So I'd love to hear more about your ideas for the future and things like that. Uh, so that was a fun segment there. So. Yeah, man. Let's do it. Yeah, I would love that, that, those are conversations I love to do too. Like just kind of, you know, just kind of dreaming of what's going to happen, what can happen, what won't happen. Also, like you come up, like like I said, you learn a lot of things. Like kind of what you said, right? Like we might be replacing the clinicians before the people dispensing, and it's just like things like that you can kind of talk through, and it's it's just fun to have. I just like these conversations. My, a lot. My, my biggest uh, hot take, which I don't even know if it is, uh, is that the future highest paid professional in healthcare is the nurse. I don't think we're too far off the pen, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they're the yeah. ones providing care. So if you just automate everything outside of like the stuff that actually has to get done by you. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I don't. I mean, I, I think we're not that far away. And I think we're that, not. and it's, it's coming. Yeah, like you said, like the physical act of doing something is going to be hard to replace. Um, mm -hmm. And the communication part is really hard to replace and they, that's literally their job. So, mm -hmm. yep. so if you're a nurse out there, good for you, <laughs> exactly. but man, thank you so much for your time. Yeah. I really appreciate it. And I think, um, yeah, no, thanks, man. You bet. No problem. Thank All you. Right. I really appreciate it. Bye.